Welcome to Navara FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. Let's start at the very beginning. Humanity was once banded together in loose tribes of hunter-gatherers, living a primitive existence of, depending on who you ask, prelapsarian innocence or unrestrained savagery. Then, at some point, we discover agriculture, our original sin, and this causes us to gather in ever larger conurbations, eventually cities and then states. From this, we get civilization as we know it. Science, literature, organized religion, medicine, culture, progress with a capital P. We also get domination, hierarchy, and inequality. The price of the former is the latter, and one way or another to challenge these social arrangements would be to deny essential facts about human history. It's a very neat story, one that we've heard a thousand times before, and one that structures and justifies much contemporary political thought about what is and isn't possible. There's just one problem. It's not true. That is what David Graeber and David Wengrow set out in their extraordinary work, The Dawn of Everything, which upends received wisdom about the origins of the current moment, peering into the mists of history to scry for clues as to how humanity has arranged its societies and its civilizations, how we structured our relationship to each other and to the natural world. They find not one monolithic history where the dawn of agriculture locks us into the doom of the present from which there is no escape, but a complex, multifaceted history of human experimentation with the question of how to live. This is the result of a decade-long friendship and collaboration between the late great anthropologist David Graeber and David Wengrow, Professor of Comparative Archaeology at the UCL Institute of Archaeology. In its thorough routing of this received wisdom about how civilization began, what it is, and what we talk about when we talk about the origins of inequality, this book challenges ideas fundamental to neoliberal mythology. Ideas about homo economicus, about how the current state of capitalism is somehow the natural expression of some fundamental fact about our species. From that point of possibility, we perhaps might be able to talk about real change. I had the enormous pleasure of sitting down with David Wengrow to talk about this project of using anthropology and archaeology as a tool of radical reimagination. So your book first off tackles the origins of the question of the origins of inequality, placing it at the beginning of what we now know as the Enlightenment and a face-off conceptually, if you like, between Rousseau and Hobbes that has framed how our uh, political discourse has unraveled <laughs> since then. I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit more about why you were intrigued by the question of the origins of inequality and why that has become so sticky in our conversations. Yes. Actually, your question kind of retraces the process we went through with this project, which um, when we started, uh, our intention was to write quite a short book, uh, which would be a contribution to this um, kind of explosion of literature on the topic of social inequality. So we wanted to write uh, Origins of Social Inequality uh, based on some evidence because we, we were quite struck by how many books out there are either terribly out of date in, in the kind of information they're using, particularly about the early phases of, of the human past, but also then go on to extrapolate uh, the political implications of this rather out of date or simply 
wrong story, uh, which turned out to be a bit unhelpful. Um, it was maybe something we can go into. So that was our intention uh, to begin with. But um, 10 plus years down the line, what we've ended up with is a 700 page book with about 50 pages of bibliography and a very long index, which is explicitly not about the origins of social inequality. It took us a couple of years to realize that we were going down a bit of a rabbit hole with that, because when you start reflecting on it, it's actually a very peculiar question. I mean, it's a strange way. Why do we frame the broad sweep of human history this way? Why have we been doing that for 250-odd years, the origins of social inequality? For a start, it already presupposes something massive. It presupposes that social inequality has an origin, and therefore that there was some other time before social inequality. A time of what? A time of equals. What's the evidence for that? Well, there really isn't any. So what's actually going on here? And uh, we found ourselves sort of burrowing down into the origins of the question of the origins of social inequality, which led in some really unexpected directions that we got very excited about, and which ultimately helped us to understand this huge amount of new evidence that's coming in from our fields. I'm a, an archaeologist, David was a, a, an anthropologist, and um, there's just so much information these days that doesn't fit the conventional story, the story that you've alluded to that goes all the way back to Hobbes and Rousseau. Um, and actually, it was necessary to almost sort of dig up and excavate and, and unpick the... Uh, the roots of the question, how it ever became a, a thing in the first place, um, in order to then tell a different kind of story. So what are the contours of that conventional narrative that we are told slash tell ourselves about the okay. state of the modern world? Yeah. Um, well, there's three things, I guess, uh, about it, um, which I should say before. First of all, I can summarize it very quickly, which is a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> you know, that, that's when you know you're in the realm of myth and fable is when you can summarize uh, 200,000 years of human history in about 10 seconds. So the short version of the, uh, uh, let's just call it the wrong story, um, is the, you know, that our species originated in tiny bands of hunter-gatherers who were very, very egalitarian. And then something happens that, uh, that made us plummet from this original state of innocence and inequality into inequality. So the nature of the story, in essence, is that living in small societies is equivalent to being equal. Living in big societies means complexity, but it also means hierarchy. Uh, so, you know, as Rousseau put it, uh, man is born free, but everywhere we find him in chains. This is kind of deep fatalistic paradox at the heart of this notion of civilization, that as we become more complex and more self-aware and more technologically savvy, uh, we also have to abandon these freedoms. Um, and that's, you know, that's one very kind of... Um, simple overarching story which crops up in many different contexts you know you pick up a treatise on human ethics or the impact of pandemics and warfare on human societies 
or the prospects for uh, you know a more sustainable relationship with the the environment in the earth system and almost whatever the topic poverty anything you like this story kind of undergirds it you know it underpins it it's the it's the structure we believe a mythical structure in the true sense of myth there's a kind of thought structure, a kind of mental structure that underpins, seems to underpin all these other debates, including debates about equality and inequality. Um, yeah, that's, that, I mean, that, that's the simplest way. I mean, the other variant on this, so, that, you know, the, the wrong version I've just given you is the one that goes back to this essay, 1754, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau submits an essay for uh, an essay competition. Uh, it's competitions set by the Académie Dijon, and it's them, actually, who come up with the question, something along the lines of, um, what is the origin of uh, inequality uh, among uh, people, and is it a natural thing? Very strange question for people living in 18th century France under the Ancien Régime to be asking. You know, this is one of the most hierarchical societies <laughs> on earth. Um, so immediately the, you know, it struck us there's something interesting. Why did anyone think that was a sensible sort of question to be asking in the first? But incidentally, um, Rousseau didn't win. Uh, his essay was over the word limit, so the judges actually refused to read it. <laughs> David uh, Graeber, my, my co-author, actually managed to dig out a volume with all of the essays that were submitted to that competition. And the one that won it is just some dreadful piece that nobody's ever heard of. It basically puts forward a religious argument for the origins of inequality. So Rousseau lost the competition, but basically then won the whole of human history because it's his essay that we're still talking about. The other sort of flip side, you know, the other wrong story in, in a way goes back even further to the middle of the 17th century. Um, and it's the one that um, was most famously told uh, by Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan, really the book that is the philosophical basis of modern political theory. And um, I should say at the outset, neither Hobbes nor Rousseau actually meant these stories they were telling to be taken as history. They weren't to be taken as fact. I mean, Rousseau is absolutely explicit. He said, you know, this is speculation. Um, so it's something very peculiar has happened, you know, that these, these ideas have become the basis of modern social science. And Hobbes as well. Uh, we're talking here about people who were what you might call state of nature theorists. What that means is they allowed themselves to speculate without any evidence whatsoever about what humans were like in their original condition. Hobbes uh, also begins with little bands of people living in relative isolation, but whereas Rousseau's little bands of hunter-gatherers are innocent and free, uh, Hobbes uh, depicts a, a much more unhappy state. Uh, humans are innately, originally violent, competitive, life is nasty, brutish and short. It's kind of war against everybody. And if there's been anything like progress in human history, in his story it comes from taming those base human instincts. So all the things Rousseau was complaining about, like police, governments, judges, um, all these things that for him corrupted the original state of innocence for Hobbes are what save us from these endemic cycles of 
you know, blood feuds, warfare and violence. Uh, the funny thing is that whichever wrong story you go for, you end up at the same place, which is that simply by living in large complex societies, um, we're supposed to just resign ourselves to the need for top-down governance, um, tiers of hierarchical management, um, and any hope of structural change is buried you know, somewhere in some distant epoch of human existence. You'd have to go back and you know, destroy 99% of people on the planet so that we could wander around the trees again, and then maybe you could recreate a, a society of equals. So that's the overriding message of both of these uh, factually wrong stories. Uh, what I was saying earlier about the political implications that more, much more recent contemporary writers uh, from Francis Fukuyama, Jared Diamond, Steven Pinker, Yuval Harari, you know, they do it explicitly um, to say, well, you know, this is, this is an irreversible trajectory. Um, and um, that's where we are. Yeah, you can definitely see in the ways in which the stories, although they seem to be conflicting on their face, the way in which they structure a sense of inevitability and a, and a, a necessary deficit of human imagination about how we can arrange our societies, our relationships to nature, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and they can be sort of subbed in for one another when necessary in this kind of very mobile, flexible way. They do remind me of um, how... I guess the billionaires of Silicon Valley talk about the ways in which those kinds of base instincts that define humanity mm. uh, redeem themselves via the evolution of complex culture and the evolution of medicine and elongated lifespans and that kind of thing, therefore proving that actually there was nothing to be redeemed in them. And, you know, we shouldn't put these false legal limits on, you know, the muscular free market and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, they all sort of start with the premise that to begin with, humans were innately something. <laughs> you know, maybe it was good, maybe it was evil, maybe it was altruistic, maybe it was competitive, but there was a there was an original state, state of nature, something like that, and then something happened to change it. So, you know, there, there's a kind of uh, internal logic which you can get trapped into, and it seemed to us that most of these writers, although they they begin from very different premises about what that original condition was. Um, they, they do all seem to be, you know, going round and round in this, this kind of logical trap of assuming that there was something original to begin with and that it was fundamentally different and that, you know, we've left it behind. So it's, it's I mean, the framework works, I think, because we all hear it from childhood. I mean, it's basically the Garden of Eden. You know, it's, it's scripture. It's the way we're taught to think about origins in general. Let's actually talk about the sort of begging the question of, of humanity in that story of, of human origins, because both of these uh, fables of, quote unquote, the origins of inequality uh, evolve alongside uh, new political formations of colonialism uh, that uh, put them in conversation with people who weren't considered fully human. Um, for instance, the... Uh, First Nations people in North America, um, who we think of as the subjects of study rather than the originators of culture and analysis and philosophy, etc., mm. who, of course, had a lot to say about these extremely 
bizarre and specific conceptualizations of freedom and, and inequality. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this this turned out to be absolutely crucial because actually to begin with, you don't really see, when, when I say to begin with, I mean in these early colonial encounters, uh, I mean the ones we tended to focus on in the book um, were encounters between mainly French colonists and missionaries um, in parts of North America that are now sort of partly in Canada, partly in, in sort of upstate New York, because those are the, I mean, the people they encountered there, those are the ones that somebody like Rousseau uh, would have been most familiar with. And not just him, but um, most Enlightenment philosophers, when they talked about freedom and equality, they were very explicit. They said, you know, we're getting these ideas from over there, from these, what we now call First Nations people, what they refer to as savages. And they're explicit about this. And um, something's happened, which is itself very interesting, about why modern historians of ideas don't believe that to be true now, <laughs> which uh, we could go into. But just remind me what your original question was. I was um, wondering how questions of the origins of inequality were influenced by the what, yes. what oh, that was it, it was the, about de dehumanization talk, dehumanization yeah. so actually what you find in these early colonial accounts um is not really uh the dehumanization of non-european peoples actually um even jesuits who are there to turn them into good christians uh, and who are basically horrified by some of the things they get up to like uh, you know women can get divorced quite easily and sexual freedoms I and mean, it's appalling <laughs> you can't uh, bus people around and there's no ranks and uh, no coercion it's strange um you know they're outraged by a lot of what they're seeing uh, but they're also intrigued and the jesuit relations of which there are some 71 volumes of this were hugely popular in Europe, you know, every literate, uh, enlightened uh, sort of uh, salon, uh, uh, most major European cities would have had copies of these descriptions, which um, describe surprising, new, fascinating ways in which human societies can operate. And at that time, yes, you know, there is already the, the beginnings of a concept of race, but we're not yet uh, in let's say the 19th century where you've got eugenics and you know this idea that people are inherently inferior. Uh, actually, on the contrary, uh, a lot of European uh, uh, thinkers uh, are becoming very excited about the possibilities of what they're hearing uh, about these other ways of organizing society. Um, and what they're hearing is this uh, um, critique, essentially, uh, of themselves. This material is, is challenging for us as modern readers, if we're reading it from a European perspective, because the uh, you're often dealing with dialogues. So these are records of dialogues, some of which are made up and fanciful, some of which it turns out clearly did take place and were recorded. Um, but in those dialogues, it's actually not the position of the European that most of us would find recognizable or intuitive. I mean, let's remember these are 17th or 18th century Europeans. Some of them are Jesuits. Um, they're big fans of things like uh, uh, absolute monarchy and revealed religion. Um, and um, it's actually the indigenous interlocutor 
who in these uh, kind of intellectual contests uh, is making most of the points that probably you or I would make today. Um, so it's challenging material. It's historically controversial. Well, you get two arguments. You know, there's the sort of basically racist argument that, you know, there's no way these kind of primitive people could possibly have dreamed up these uh, elaborate theories that had such profound influence on something as weighty and, 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 and significant as the European Enlightenment, which is obviously Tosh. Um, but then there's a more complex and subtle um, argument for dismissing what Enlightenment philosophers themselves were saying about the debt that they owed to indigenous thinkers. And that goes along the lines of, well, if you believe that you are guilty of romanticizing, you know, you're idealizing. When we have uh, a book, like uh, for argument's sake, the Baron Lahontan's Curious Dialogues with a, a Wise Savage Who Has Traveled, which became a bestseller in Europe. There were theatrical productions based on it. It was translated into every major European language. And it features a dialogue between uh, himself uh, and a character called Adario, uh, who is a Wendat, Huron-Wendat uh, individual. And they debate all the great issues of the day, freedom, equality, uh, Christianity, the significance of money in human societies. And the standard way of looking at texts like that is to say it's, it's basically all made up. What we've got here is a disgruntled European nobleman uh, who's unhappy with his own situation, wants to criticize the church, wants to criticize the kind of state structures that are emerging in, in his own country, in France at the time, but doesn't want to go to prison for it. So he creates a sock puppet uh, like a sort of Muppet version of a non-European. And other people went for Polynesians or Persians. Um, and that these other characters are, are basically fabrications uh, uh, put into their mouths, you know, these critiques uh, or subversive, potentially subversive views, deism, views about sexual freedoms, criticisms of monarchy or hierarchy or commerce, um, and you're on safe ground. So on that basis as well, we're told that we can safely forget about and not worry about what anybody uh, of First Nations uh, origin might have been thinking or saying, uh, because it's all made up for some other reason. And that's kind of interesting, because what we're dealing with here is often referred to as the noble savage trope, right? Everyone's heard of the noble savage trope. There's a million English lit PhDs and French lit PhDs but dissecting the, uh, the workings of the noble savage trope and how they all use it and abuse it and create these kind of fantastic images of the, the perfect good savage um, as, a, as, a, as a kind of reflection on the discontents of their own European societies. The thing is, um, this is pointed out by an anthropologist called Ter Ellingson in, in a brilliant analysis of this whole uh, noble savage idea. He shows that actually, if you go back to the early Enlightenment, late 17th, early 18th century, um, and you look at these travelers' accounts of the Americas, or even missionary relations, it's not really there. There is no kind of uniformly positive opinion of 
these non-European indigenous peoples they're encountering, often, they're often actually highly critical. If there's any reference to nobility, it's usually got something more to do with hunting and the fact that they go off, the men go off and kill wild animals. Oh, this is quite aristocratic. You know, we recognize that. It's something to do with noble. But that's it. Actually, what Ellington, uh, Ellington uh, explains, um, interestingly, strangely, is that this... Uh, idea of the noble savage comes much later. It's actually really concocted in the 19th century by a kind of clique of racists who took over, racists and eugenicists, I mean really hardcore people who wanted to basically exterminate entire populations, who sort of took over for a while the British ethnological society. Um, and they found it a very useful way of getting rid of troublemakers. I mean, just dismissing people who found anything of social, ethical, moral, intellectual value in what they regarded as primitive people's ways of life. Say, oh, you're just, you know, you're just putting out noble savage tropes. You're romanticizing, so we don't forget about that. Um, and it's it's explicit, and there's, there's an explosion of this kind of critique beginning with uh, Chinal in the 19th century. And so you end up caught between these two positions, which one way or another um, allow you not to engage with the possibility that there were actually indigenous intellectuals and that Europeans, however complicit they were in, in destroying their ways of life, might have actually learned their languages and listened to what they were saying. People are quite happy with the idea that we adopted things like tobacco smoking from pipes and drinking caffeinated beverages, you know, that all came from the so-called new world. But they never ask whether we also adopted some of the ideas that people were expressing while they were smoking pipes or <laughs> drinking caffeinated beverages. So this all became very central to the way we ended up reframing uh, our own view of, of world history. In that history, we do tend to talk about agriculture as a sort of original sin and it's impossible to claw our way back into the pre-Edenic innocence that is sort of sometimes represented by the noble savage or in various sort of mythic states of nature. But you talk about in the book how our general picture both of agriculture as implying one specific kind of political formation mm. and as agriculture as a sort of one-time disruptive process that then automatically took over human society mm -hmm. as completely unsupported by the evidence. That's correct. I mean, if you pick up any of these treaties on on big picture of human history, uh, there it is, bang in the middle, the agricultural revolution. Uh, well, here's the news. Uh, there wasn't one. <laughs> there really wasn't. I mean, you know, just the institute where I work in London is, you know, the third floor is full of people called archaeobotanists who are the real experts in this stuff. And I mustn't leave out the archaeozoologists as well. These are the people who year after year, day after day, sift through ancient charred seeds and, you know, spend their lives looking down microscopes and sorting tiny bits of bone. And then, you know, you pick up the latest thing in Waterstones and it's as if none of this research had ever happened. So, you know, just to summarize how wrong the idea that there was an agricultural revolution and it had X, Y, Z effects for all of humanity, you know. Um, first of all, we know now that there were probably something in the order of 15 independent centers of plant and animal domestication dotted around the planet. 
the idea that there's like this sort of Garden of Eden, so usually in the Middle East, not coincidentally, <laughs> um, where it all started and then changed everything is just wrong. Um, and then there's the nature of the process. So we're talking about domestication here. Um, there was a guy who worked at my institute actually many years ago called Gordon Hillman, who actually did these experiments where he took wild wheat and he used Neolithic technologies. So he used flint sickles and things. This is kind of cool thing you get to do if you study archaeology. Little plug for my subject there. And he harvested, uh, harvested them in a sort of Neolithic fashion, just an experiment to see how long it would take for the biological changes to actually take effect that get you from wild wheat to domestic wheat. And what that means is basically that they lose the capacity to shed their seed spontaneously. Uh, so, uh, you know, the seed stays on the stem, on the ear until a bird eats it or a human harvests it, it will just sit there and rot. Um, so plants become kind of useless un under domestication. They become dependent uh, on us for their reproduction. And the fascinating thing that he found out is that it doesn't take very long at all. If you really wanted to do it, you could probably do it. You know, you could make those genetic changes take effect in about 20 years, 50 years, 100 years at most. But here's the thing. When we actually look at the physical remains of seeds uh, from ancient prehistoric sites, um, you can tell by the, the morphology and the size how far along that process they are. And it takes inordinately longer for those changes to become visible. I mean, I'm talking about thousands of years. So what's going on there? Are we dealing with people who are incredibly stupid and incompetent? No, because we're talking about hunters and gatherers. These are the experts. These are people who've been manipulating wild plants uh, for all you know, time eternal. Um, more than likely, we're talking about uh, women. Um, if the ethnographic and ethno-historical records are anything to go by, it's uh, traditionally plant-based uh, economies, not just food production, but also medicines, poisons, textiles, and fabrics uh, in most of the world's societies has been predominantly women's labor, um, are doing something else. The, the technical term in the anthropological literature is they call it low-level food production. In the book, we, we go for something a bit friendlier. We, we just call it play farming, where you are kind of hovering on the threshold of agriculture but not going the whole way. Uh, if you think about it, you know, agriculture is hard. Agriculture locks you into some pretty brutal routines and rhythms um, and forms of labor, harvesting, threshing, planting, etc. Um, there are many reasons why societies which have access to abundant wild resources might not want to go that particular way. Some of them practical, some of them social. So what we see in various parts of the world is people experimenting with cultivation, going part of the way, but continuing hunting, gathering, fishing, foresting, and maintaining these very broad sort of portfolios of you know, very diverse ecologies. And they're actually the ones, it's totally different from this traditional story we've got about the agricultural revolution, which is all about biopower, if you like. You know, it's, oh, they could eat more wheat, so they got 
bigger and stronger and there's, I'm simplifying, but, you know, populations grew larger and the hunter-gatherers obviously didn't stand a chance. You know, they were immediately going to be bred out or forced out um, by these early farming populations. Well, no, it's not at all what happens. What the evidence shows us is that actually the most successful early farmers, if you want to measure success in terms of people actually surviving, spreading, moving around and, and, and um, uh, uh, expanding uh, in space, um, the populations that do that most successfully are actually the ones that um, uh, keep agriculture within its bounds, you know, within the bounds of a much broader, more diverse, more flexible type of ecology. Um, and actually, there are populations that do go in the other direction. Actually, Europe's first farmers in Central Europe, in one of the chapters in the, in the middle of the book, we describe uh, some new research um, that was done in the last sort of um, 10, 20 years about what actually happened to the first farmers in Central Europe. Um, it's a really surprising uh, finding. Um, so these are groups uh, about 7,000 years ago um, whose economy originated in the Middle East, uh, but who then moved, migrated into Central Europe. And as they moved, their economies got less diverse and more narrow and actually ended up looking a bit like something like a medieval peasant economy. So they're just farming wheat and barley. They're keeping cattle, pigs and goat and not doing a great deal else. So they've lost a lot of this flexibility and diversity. And actually what happens to those groups, archaeologists call them the linear bandkeramik uh, folk, whatever, culture, um, German word because they're mostly in Germany and Austria. Um, they, they suffer a pretty miserable fate. Uh, there are actually uh, really quite awful findings of mass graves around villages, fortified villages. There's evidence of raiding and scalping and women and children being carried off. So they're missing from the mass graves. And these seem to be societies that paid a, a very heavy price precisely for this kind of loss of uh, flexibility. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for any kind of modern lesson from all this, it would be that the Neolithic economies that um, actually did best in terms of you know, reproducing the, themselves um, wasn't about biopower, it was more about bio-flexibility, if you like. These ways of interpreting um, what agriculture meant for the first people who were kind of experimenting with it, it a lot of the language around the people who could eat the most wheat and therefore could, could grow the biggest and therefore defeat the other people. It's very kind of biodeterminist and recalls the way in which we sometimes talk about the savage existing outside time and then history starts in earnest when we settle down, start mm. planting wheat mm. and uh, start building cities, etc., etc. And it, even when that moment of the inauguration of history happens, it does tend to sort of suck the capacity for politics out of human history. We do seem to be sort of wandering around kind of doing whatever uh, gets us the most caloric intake slash what the nearest priest is telling us, etc. And it just seems mm. to me such a bizarre way of moving through the world. I think like, how how do you kind of interpret the current political moment if you think that that is what humans are essentially bound to do? Well, you're losing, you know, if you do that, if, you, if, you, if that's the way you look at history, you're actually losing most of human history. 
I mean, we're talking about something like 95% of human history is non-agricultural societies. And the idea that they were all one thing, or even two things or three things, is no longer tenable. You know, you look at the evidence we've got now from different parts of the world. In Japan, you've got this pre-rice farming culture called the Jomon, which lasts for about 10,000 years, in which you've got monuments going up and coming down. You've got little sort of cities with big storage facilities. In America, you've got sites like Poverty Point in Louisiana, about three and a half thousand years ago, um, which is huge. I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of hunter-gatherer metropolis with these vast earthworks. You have to imagine thousands of hunter-gatherers congregating in this place to do we know not what, but they're definitely not in small egalitarian bands. In the Middle East, you might have seen this extraordinary site on the border between Syria and Turkey called Gebekli Tepe. It's been in the newspapers a lot. And uh, there you've got these great big stone temples put up by people who are not farmers, they're not agriculturalists, uh, with these extraordinary carvings of monstrous and scary animals. Um, you know, Ice Age Europe, you've got burials of individuals that look like royalty or aristocracy or something. People bury vast amounts of wealth and regalia. So the idea that we could collapse all of this into maybe one or two categories and say, oh, that's what humans were like before agriculture. It's just becoming a bit silly. I'd love to talk a bit about um, the kind of link of destiny and inevitability that is sometimes drawn between the kind of mode of production or, or the climate mm. more broadly and what the society that lives there will look like. Often I, I've heard uh, the lack of pack animals in Central and South America ah. as... Yeah. The reason for European well, you do have llamas and alpacas and that sort of thing, but only in Peru. <laughs> Precisely, I mean, it's, it's sort of um, absurd on 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 many different levels, and also is very conveniently robs the the colonists of agency as well. It's like, well, what, you know, they had horses. What but are they, they supposed you know, to the, do? These kind of arguments you're, you're talking about, Eleanor, were, were very explicitly made as uh, in the 17th century as a, basically a legal justification for appropriating native lands. You read John Locke, uh, you know, the so-called agricultural argument was that these people are not improving landlords. Uh, they're just kind of wild tenants in their state of nature. And it's all quite mystical, actually. You know, Locke talks about, well, if you don't mix your hands in the soil and, you know, give, give, so then you've got no right to be there. You've got no concept of property even. So How do they make it through the day? We well, just take this stuff, you know. And, I mean, to this day, You've got First Nations, not just in the Americas, but in Oceania, parts of Africa, still fighting these cases in courts of law uh, to show that actually they had their own systems of land tenure. No, they weren't identical to European ones at all. Um, but of course, they existed. And there are many ways of modifying landscapes and investing labor and care in landscapes other than growing wheat. Uh, but somehow none of that, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't a terribly sophisticated justification, but um, it served its function, which was essentially uh, one of colonization. When we talk about the transformation of, of stuff, whether that's, you know, land, mm. wealth, etc., into property, as we would understand mm. it, um, there seems to be a, a link between that 
and our kind of modern conventional understandings of of what freedom looks like. Ah, yeah, this is interesting because I mean it touches on this whole question of what are what are the origins of private property? Uh, favorite topic of speculation for you know, many generations of social scientists, and um, the agricultural argument. You know, going back to uh, uh, Rousseau and Locke and so on, was that property arises out of agriculture. So uh, it's the fact of actually becoming sedentary, living in a fixed location, investing labor in growing and harvesting crops uh, is what kind of gives rise to the concept of property. Well, we can see why that was a convenient sort of story to tell uh, for people who wanted to dispossess other people who weren't doing that. Um, but there's absolutely no reason to believe it. First of all, there are many agrarian farming systems documented all over the world, all throughout history, that don't rely on systems of uh, you know, uh, privatized land and private property in that sense. There's famously the Russian Mir organizations, Anglo-Saxon, uh, you've got Runrig and Rundale, the German Marx system, Palestinians had the Masha'a system before the British mandate there. Balinese Subak, you know, these are all flexible collective systems of land holding where you don't have a landlord and tenants. You have kinship groups or extended communities with the shared investment in the fruits of a particular uh, uh, plot of land, uh, but you don't have strict ownerships. There's nothing in the logic of farming that brings private property into effect in the kind of almost sort of magical way that Rousseau imagined. So where does it come from? It's the next question uh, to ask. <laughs> and is there? I'm hoping you have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought that was your job. God damn it! Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's me. It's me. Uh, no, we do, we do, we do, we do have um, some. Uh, I'm not sure it's um, a complete answer, but there there are some very suggestive uh, things that that we observe um, that we found in in the course of our research. First of all, you have to be quite precise about your definitions. What are the origins of private property? What do you mean? Do you mean private property in exactly the legal sense that we use that today in Europe? Well, if you do, if you want to know what are the origins of that, then you have to look at the history of that concept, which is actually a pretty strange history. And it comes back to your question about freedom. Because in the European tradition, uh, I think this is probably best explained by the Jamaican sociologist uh, Orlando Patterson back in the 80s and 90s in his books on freedom and slavery. Um, European legal traditions classify property in a way that could only really come out of slaveholding societies. And we get it via uh, medieval legal systems, but ultimately it goes all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome, where owning something gives you the freedom to dispose of it, abuse it. Actually, the Latin term is abusus uh, for the ultimate form of ownership. Even today in contemporary European legal terms, you've got the right to use, usus, the right to use the fruit of something, fructus, and then full ownership is, is the right of abuse. It's the right to commodify, buy, sell, even destroy. That is extraordinarily on the nose, <laughs> it's it, it, it explains certain things, I think, about the way we appropriate, extract. Um, and it's actually historically a pretty unusual way of understanding ownership. So if we're talking about the origins of that, 
fine, you know, let's talk about that. That's one kind of question. But there's no particular reason to assume that that rather peculiar, historically contingent idea of what property is, is somehow natural or universal. Actually, if you start looking at other systems, they operate on quite different principles. It, it's so curious to me how that sits um, so uncomfortably alongside the way in which we project like the family unit as the kind mm. of uh, unit of human sociality of human culture because you know the idea of the roman law kind of properly applied was meant to be used and disposed of by the male patriarch head of household who um, had his needs tended to by slaves who had exactly. dominion over children and wives etc um and that's obviously a relationship with a lot of violence permitted within it, that was kind of, you know, as very much a necessary part of that social formation. But then we take that social formation, project it back into somehow a state of innocence. And that just seems such a kind of a, a contradiction to me. That's right. I mean, as David uh, uh, Graeber pointed out in other publications, like his book on debt, I mean, even the words we use, family, um, carry that, you know, they echo uh, those assumptions that, you know, household is a patriarchal system where fathers have uh, tyrannical rights over their offspring and their offspring's property and where there will be um, people who are not free to do your bidding and make your breakfast and so on. And, you know, th this really uh, brings us around to, I guess, the other dimension of the book, which is trying to piece together the beginnings of another story, um, another way of conceptualizing this broad sweep of human history. If it wasn't the agricultural revolution, uh, and if it wasn't the invention of cities that locked us into these systems of inequality that, that we seem to just take for granted now, then what was it? Um, and these questions about gender, family organization, household organization, um, that's a real pattern that emerges from the book. We find it time and again in different parts of the world that the most insidious forms of structural inequality uh, are the ones that take root on the small scale first, and then they expand. Gender relations, age relations. It, it's uh, fascinating, really, in, in light of the way in which you talk about uh, the question of scale, because this story, which I'm sure many listeners will have heard a million times over. I actually read a version of it um, on the train here, um, which is that human beings are essentially built for small-scale societies, mm. different families that band together at a max ceiling of 150, 200 people. And if you get any bigger than that, violence erupts, you need some kind of bureaucracy, some kind of state, some kind of hierarchy in order to, to manage the, and negotiate those kinds of interpersonal conflicts that, that erupt. And uh, this it sounds, just, it's, it's an illegibility of the violence that takes place on the small scale. This sounds to me like possibly you've been reading Robin Dunbar, or some <laughs> version of what the theory called Dunbar's number. Uh, Robin Dunbar's very eminent primatologist British primatologist um, who did very important work um, on group size in non-human primates, baboons, orangutans, that sort of thing, chimps. 
and came up with this really intriguing, very important scientific finding that the size of the groups formed by non-human primates actually align very consistently with not exactly the size of their brains, but the ratio between the brain size and the neocortex. Details aren't that important here, but it, it was a very interesting finding that suggested that there is some cognitive upper limit to the size of groups, social. What he means by a group is um, animals that groom each other and express deep uh, you know, ties and, and, and affinities. Um, and that was all very important research. And then he went the next step. He said, well, what about us? Um, here are our brains and got typical sort of neocortex, uh, human uh, brain size, capacity, etc. Um, what is our optimal group size? You know, what would one predict looking at the average size human brain? And he came up with the idea that it was about 150 people, which came to be known as Dunbar's number. Maybe the only person who's ever named a theory after himself. Um, and Dunbar's number, and he, he, he found all this really intriguing evidence that actually there are these groups in different fields of life, everything from church congregations to military units that congregate, that aggregate around this figure of 150. Except there are lots of other groups that don't. <laughs> yeah. um, and ultimately it came back again to this business of hunter-gatherers. And, oh, well, look, if we look at these hunter-gatherers like the Batek in Malaysia or the Hadza in Tanzania, oh, look, how extraordinary. When they come together and form camps, it's about 150 people. Amazing. And put together in that way, it seemed like quite a, a, a compelling uh, argument. I mean, we can all relate to this. You know, you've got 150 Facebook friends or whatever that you can vaguely keep track of and you sort of trust them and you know who they are. And then you've got thousands of others. You've got no idea who on earth these people are. You can't, you can't hold that much information in your head. Um, so intriguing line of argument. Um, there's something clearly very important about that. You know, I mean, we all have different capacities uh, just as individuals. Some look at kids in the playground. Some kids are perfectly comfortable playing in a huge, noisy bundle of children. Uh, it doesn't upset them. Other kids are immediately overwhelmed and have to go somewhere quiet and retire to a corner, whatever it may be. Um, there's no denying those points about cognition and sociality. The difficulty with um, uh, where uh, Dunbar and others have gone with that kind of theory is when they start saying things like, well, as soon as you get groups bigger than 150, you need this and that. And this and that generally turns out to be things like uh, an army, a police force, a specialized system of managers and bureaucrats. Otherwise, society will immediately fall into uh, what they call anarchy, by which they mean chaos. Um, so there are so many logical leaps there between some very important sound research in fields like primatology and cognitive science and what on the other hand seems to me, uh, as we explain in the book, a completely fantastic and invented idea of human history, which is that as soon as you have groups above a certain threshold or scale, you have to have all these other things which are effectively mechanisms of control and repression. Actually, history doesn't look that way at all. When you look at the evidence 
the archaeological facts, the historical facts, one of the most fascinating things we discovered is that a surprising number of the earliest cities uh, on all the world's continents where you have thousands, tens of thousands of people living together actually don't exhibit things like um, specialized administration, uh, central storage, palaces, temples, rich burials, evidence of marked social... These things are just not there. They're, they're actually not present. Instead, we've got societies thousands of years before what we think of as the origins of democracy already uh, organizing themselves in urban societies, which are quite robustly egalitarian, run on the basis of local councils without any kind of central... Uh, authority. So there's a great deal of empirical evidence there, um, which really goes against this uh, notion of scale as being what sets hierarchy in place. And then there's also the hunter-gatherers themselves. You know, you, again, it's a very sort of seductive idea that here we are in this planet with 8 billion people on it, living in mega cities, these incredibly complex social environments, but our brains are still in the Paleolithic. You know, we're hunter-gatherers. That's how we evolved for most of human history. And we evolved to work in small teams. So how are we doing all this other stuff? Well, we must have all this institutional and technological kind of scaffolding just to keep it together or it's all going to fall to bits. Well, that idea doesn't really hold up either. Actually, the latest studies of recent modern living hunter-gatherers on which theories like Dunbar's were initially based, uh, have come up with completely different findings. Actually, they don't live exclusively in these small groups of 150 people at all. Uh, they form these kind of vastly extended communities of people. I'm talking here about societies in, in the Australian Western Desert, uh, the East African Rift Valley, um, where anthropologists have gone and done detailed, rigorous statistical work. Now, they're not going to meet all these other people in the same way that you're not going to meet everyone in the British Isles, but you still think of yourself as possibly English or Scottish or whatever. Uh, and similarly, uh, hunter-gatherers in recent times, when anthropologists do this kind of research, find that um, they effectively live um, on two different scales, much like us. There's the scale of immediate physical contact, people you actually meet and interact with, but there's also this kind of imagined community, which can extend to thousands of other individuals who, if they suddenly showed up one day from hundreds of miles away, might not even speak the same language as you, but they are part of your society in the sense that you would be obliged to take them in, offer them hospitality, care for them. They could be a marriage partner, for example. There can be debts and obligations. In other words, you form part of this extended society. And archaeology really bears this out, because if you look at the evidence of what human societies were like before the first cities, you don't see little isolated pockets of humanity. You see these things that archaeologists rather elusively call culture areas or interactions. It's basically these big networks of societies, and they can span half a continent. These are like the things I was referring to earlier, the linear band keramik. These are demographically small groups, you know, maybe village societies, but they form these vast networks based on shared forms of ritual and hospitality. People are moving around, trading, intermarrying. So when cities form, it's not strictly a process of expansion. It's almost like one of these big regional 
confederacies getting sucked into one place, which in cognitive terms means there is no rupture uh, that would suddenly oblige you to appoint kings or put managers in charge of everything because, you know, effectively, um, yeah, well, as I've said, um, it's as much a process of shrinkage as, as of expansion. I'm so intrigued by your discussion of the city as a kind of quite active experiment mm. in different kinds of political arrangements. If the, we, the regular story of like the origin of like the city as this monolithic one-time thing is untrue, like what does that look like? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, in the Valley of uh, Mexico uh, around the year zero, um, people start flooding in droves uh, to a place uh, which we know um, by a much later name that was given to it by the Aztecs, actually. They called it Teotihuacan. When the Aztecs showed up in, in that part of uh, Central America, uh, they found this ruined city with its pyramids of the, the sun and the moon and the way of the dead. It's incredible uh, ruins, and they were fascinated by it. They even built their own capital, Tenochtitlan, on the model of Teotihuacan. So they're already doing archaeology in a way. Um, and um, archaeologists have been able to reconstruct many things about this uh, much earlier city, uh, Teotihuacan, which is vast. I mean, it grows in size to uh, a scale of, uh, well, the latest estimates suggest about 100,000 people by, let's say, the year 200 or 300 AD. So you know, comparisons have been drawn with imperial Rome. It's vast. And this is in the absence of pack animals and uh, lots of metal tools. Uh, doesn't seem to be any writing system. There's a certain amount of controversy about that. Um, and that city is a great illustration of what you're talking about. The fact that you don't just get one thing, the city, and you're stuck in it. What seems to happen at Teotihuacan is that it, it starts off that way sort of heading towards something extremely stratified and higher. I mean, there are these pyramids to begin with, and under the pyramids are quite grisly discoveries of uh, human sacrifices, uh, people who've been bound and apparently you know, killed and then placed where the foundations of the, the monuments. It's quite extraordinary, actually. So under the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, under the pyramids of the sun and the moon, are these, these awful uh, victims... So clearly things are going in a rather unfriendly direction at Teotihuacan. But then something changes about 300, 250 AD. Uh, the temple is burnt to a crisp and sort of shut down. Uh, people stop building pyramids. And we don't know how it happened in the sense that we can't reconstruct the decision-making processes in any detail. But we can see what happened is that people basically withdrew their labor from these great monumental projects and put them into something else. And that something else turns out to be the most spectacular project of social housing in the ancient world. They start building these council flats, sort of villas. I mean, they're not like our idea of a council flat as a sort of great sort of 100-story block uh, with lots of people in it. These are more like luxury villas, end-to-end, uh, -end, the whole city on a grid system. So when archaeologists started uh, investigating these buildings, they thought they were palaces. 
And then they realized everyone in the city was living in one of these. So either everyone's a king or nobody's a king. Um, <laughs> and what you seem to have are these blocks, these apartment blocks. They're beautiful, you know, plastered walls and floors, lovely drainage systems. Some of them have these beautiful murals painted on the walls that are in the finest art galleries today. And we can reconstruct something of the diet. People pretty much lived really well. It doesn't seem to have been poverty uh, particularly. And each of these blocks would have housed uh, a certain number of nuclear families, maybe three or four, living around a, a central plaza. It's rather nice, you know. Sounds great. Um, it's a bit like what they're trying to do in Barcelona, I think, at the moment, what they call mega blocks, where they will uh, basically pedestrianize a group of, of um of buildings so that you end up with a nice bit in the middle where people can ride their bikes and kids can play and you can have uh, community events and things without getting run over by a moped or something. Um, so these are these are kind of like proto mega blocks or something at Teotihuacan. Um, they did it and it, it stayed that way for quite a few hundred years. We don't really understand why the city uh, was abandoned, which it was at some point. And, you know, one can uh, assume there were many social com it was a very multi-ethnic city you actually had people coming all the way from yucatan from the maya lowlands from areas like chiapas flooding in so you would have had ethnic districts and people from very different origins living cheek by jowl in this uh, i mean it, it is kind of mind-blowing but the key point about that is that it's it's a great illustration of the fact that the mere fact of living in cities didn't mean giving up that flexibility to change society in, in really quite radical directions. And it's not the only example. We have other examples from China and elsewhere. On, on the subject of that flexibility, um, you, you talk about three basic freedoms on which the kind of broader freedom of humanity to experiment with its own destiny that can be said to be founded. One is the freedom to move, uh, one is the freedom to, to disobey orders and the other is the freedom to, to rearrange social formations, the sort of latter one being very much based on the first two. And what really struck home about that was kind of how unrecognisable all three of those seem mm. to be um, in comparison to our our kind of current state of political arrangement, even just the freedom to move. It is extraordinary how difficult it is now to even imagine a society based on these principles. I mean, where, the, where these uh, ideas come from was really the fact that we, you know, we realized at some point into this 10-year project that we just accumulated this huge number of observations, sort of fascinating cases of this, cases of societies that flip seasonally between completely different social forms. So they might live part of the year in, uh, you know, strictly hierarchical societies with private property rules. And then the other part of the year, they split off into little bands and behave like hippies and share everything and, and very egalitarian. So how do you classify that? All these observations are accumulating in this thing that we call the archive. And at some stage we realized, well, if all we present is a bunch of observations, it's not enough because these old stories, the wrong stories, what they've got going for them is that they're kind of simple and elegant, like the idea of bands, tribes, chiefdom, states. You know, everyone can learn that and repeat and repeat. And, and, and so we realized we needed to um, condense 
all of these examples down into a certain number of central concepts, categories. So we ended up with the three forms of domination, three forms of freedom. Three forms of freedom you're talking about come directly out of these empirical observations that we have of, you know, how societies actually function in the absence of coercion. How do they hold themselves together? You know, this was a great mystery for the, the Europeans who observed these indigenous societies in the Great Lakes uh, regions. You know, how come they've got lower crime rates than us? They don't have prisons and, and judges. How does that work? And we know how it works because it's described there. I mean, actually, um, uh, they describe it themselves in, in these dialogues. We have accounts um, from one particularly uh, brilliant uh, uh, indigenous Wendat statesman uh, who went by the name of Kandiarong, um, who gives quite uh, explicit descriptions. And the Jesuits themselves observed, for example, um, that um, even chiefs in those societies, uh, although they were influential, they couldn't boss anyone around. You could give orders, but nobody had to obey them. Um, and yet they were highly organized. You know, they, they, they did everything from, you know, forming coalitions to fight wars to um, uh, running large and complex societies. So where does the order come from? Well, it was very obvious where it came from. If you can't coerce people into doing what you want, and you want them to do something, you have to persuade them. And all of these peoples, uh, particularly speakers of Iroquoian uh, languages and Algonquian languages in that region, were famous uh, in, in the European uh, travel literature for their skills at oratory, their political skills. They would gather like Every day they love this stuff, you know, go to the village plaza and just talk it out until you get somehow to a consensus so that you don't end up with somebody who's really aggrieved, you know, and it's not winners and losers. And even, you know, the most sort of vicious and genocidal European uh, uh, soldiers um, would be moved to tears by the speeches and the oratories that, that indigenous people gave, uh, making their own case and their own defense. So they recognized very explicitly what we call the second freedom, the freedom to disobey arbitrary authority, and how that is linked in practical and social terms to what we might call participatory democracy. It's kind of alarming if you think about the implications now of what we call democracy in politics, which is more like a kind of competition or game where politicians are meant to kind of, you know, charismatically outdo each other and attract followers and you have winners and losers and, you know, the quality of persuasion. You know, if, that, if that's a measure of democracy, uh, we must be in some considerable amount of trouble. You know, if your political leaders don't even take the trouble to try and convince you. <laughs> <laughs> that there is actually a reason for, for many of their decisions, then um, it's probably not a bad measure of uh, the quality of a, a democracy. So the second freedom um, is very clearly exemplified there. The first freedom is simply the freedom to move away from one's own community to escape if necessary. Bad argument with your father-in-law or whatever it may be, committed a crime, to move away relocate, which in turn implies hospitality at the other end. There's somebody there who's going to receive you, treat you like a human being, value you. And this uh, is what really underpins those great 
regional systems that I was describing before that come before cities in the archaeological record. But we also have uh, records of them in much more recent times. In North America, there were clan systems whereby somebody could, could move hundreds of miles and find somebody else from the beaver clan or the elk clan or whatever it was, who, because they were members of the same clan, would be obliged to feed them, take them in, offer them hospitality, effectively become part of their family. And in Australia, also, the anthropologists call them totemic systems, uh, and they really span enormous areas. So that's the first freedom. And, it, you know, if that breaks down those norms of asylum hospitality, uh, it's obviously a, a major uh, contemporary issue in the way that some people would reframe what we call the migration crisis as a crisis of hospitality, actually. Um, so these are very important issues, I think, in trying to understand how we get stuck in more durable forms of inequality and how we end up losing, in effect, the third freedom which he described, which is precisely the, the freedom to imagine and then build and enact alternative forms of human society. This raises the question of violence, both how we interpret it and how seriously we take it and whether or not we kind of identify it as the sort of package of legitimate violence wielded by a state and whatnot. Because uh, some accounts given by people such as notoriously Steven Pinker describe mm. um, progress, uh, first of all, as this linear thing and second of all, as, as characterized by a movement from a state of Hobbesian violence into one of negotiated peace, right? Which um, would seem uh, like extremely unfamiliar. Or monopoly. I, guess. I think he, you know he makes the argument that it's states with their monopoly on violence that prevent violence from remaining sort of in the sort of what he calls the the Hobbesian trap, where we're, we're evolved to you know basically repeat these dreadful cycles of what he calls tribal warfare until states come about and you have a kind of legitimate monopoly on violence and it's organized and orderly and that kind of sucks the violence out of the rest of it. I don't believe a word of this, by the way, but that's what he says. So if that is a kind of sort of deeply mythic and, you know, I have to say sort of deeply convenient way of, of excusing and rendering illegible in, in some ways the, the, the violence that the contemporary states actually enact in order to, you know, preserve their own uh, sort of forms of domination. Um, how do states, as we might recognise them today, come about? And, and I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more in that about the three systems of domination or three types mm. of domination. Well, maybe we should stick with violence just a little bit longer because it's important. I mean, you know, one can speculate about why a particular author or scholar comes up with a particular argument or what their motivations might be. I'm not particularly bothered about that. But if we just look at the facts, um, it just doesn't stand up. You know, the idea that prehistoric societies existed in this kind of state of endemic violence and warfare, it's just not true. And it's strange because... Um, Pinker himself, uh, you know, very much presents himself as a, a scientist, somebody who's interested in facts and figures. But when it comes to prehistory, just engages in the most extraordinary cherry picking. So, you know, talk about Ertzi the Iceman, who's uh, you know, this prehistoric individual in Europe who 
died uh, with an arrow in his side, and then suddenly the whole of prehistory becomes like that. Well, no. I mean, there are actually scientific, rigorous statistical analyses of um, evidence for uh, violent injury, violent death um, in the Paleolithic period. And what they show um, is that uh, uh, it actually wasn't uh, particularly common at all. Uh, so the statistical evidence uh, really doesn't support uh, this idea of endemic violence and warfare in prehistory. What we seem to have is a much more irregular and staccato pattern. There are periods of peace and security that last just as long as the period. In other words, there's no evolutionary basis for warfare any more than there is an evolutionary basis for peace, um, if you like. Um, so we have to do away with that. And then it raises, I think, a more serious scientific question, which is why is it that certain kinds of violence, I mean, all violence is obviously traumatic when it happens, but why is it that certain kinds of violence become structural? They have these durable effects and they really reconfigure societies in, in, in quite extraordinary ways, whereas other kinds of violence may be dreadful when they happen but are effectively ephemeral, they're passing, they don't, they don't have that kind of structure. That seems to us an important and interesting question to which we provide, and we, we, we think we can see the beginnings of an answer actually in, in, in the book, which is all to do with when systems of violence get mixed up with what we call systems of care. Sounds paradoxical and a bit abstract, but I could give you concrete examples, but it's precisely about this issue of when mere violence turns into structural violence. And again, we see that happening at all different scales. It's not a product of a particular threshold of, you know, demographic expansion or competition over resources. We can see it right down at the household level, the family level, where you have groups, for example, take a random example from, um, the history of the uh, palm savanna in Paraguay. There were these groups called the Guaycuru who would raid their neighbors. These are hunter-gatherers uh, who would uh, raid their neighbors for slaves. Um, and they would take uh, slaves and not put them to work producing anything, but actually put them to work looking after people, um, caring for people, caring for children, uh, they themselves had a rather stratified ranked society. So you had people who were like nobles, nobles and commoners and slaves. And the slaves would spend a lot of time um, doing cosmetics and beautiful, you know, making the noble people feel noble. Uh, a lot of uh, pre-industrial systems of slavery, slave labor doesn't seem to have been about making things. It seems to have been about making people feel special, um, more special than you. Um, Canadian uh, Northwest Coast would be uh, another example. So in a sense, you're stealing, when you raid for people, you're stealing the caring labor of bringing up children, socializing. You're, you're bringing that into your own society and harnessing it. You're increasing your own capacity for caring labor. Uh, and of course, it, it, it involves violence at a fundamental level. And it's when those kind of systems interpenetrate that it seems to become structural. So you actually end up with household systems that endure for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years based on ranks, stratified, even hereditary slavery. Um, and when that scales up, presumably, you do end up with something that looks to us like a state. I mean, it can't be a coincidence, can it? That pretty much 
every ancient kingdom or empire one can name, um, based its center, you know, the palace, the temple, whatever, whatever was the center of power, was based on the model of a patriarchal household. The king governs his people as a father governs his household. Um, the king rules the land as a father you know, um, manages his estate. Um, so the question is, you know, where does that, how does that happen in particular times and places? So the study of uh, how gendered relations within the household are transformed, still really in its infancy in, in my field. There's been a lot of theorizing and speculating, some of it a little bit fraught because it gets mixed up with discredited theories about Neolithic matriarchy and people get a bit anxious about talking about that sort of thing. But I think it's terribly important that we open up these debates again because how else are you actually going to understand the transformation of women's status in the household if you're not even allowed to speculate about non-patriarchal systems and when, you know, when these changes take place? So these are the kinds of questions we are trying to open up at various points in the book. When you're opening up these questions, like how useful um, or not is it to make claims about what one might be able to call human nature? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, I think if, because, you know, we're obviously against this idea of assuming that there is one type of human nature, one original type of human nature, but, um, and, and we're also not particularly interested in arguing that any particular previous form of human existence was better or worse, um, I think that's, um, that's a highly subjective matter. What we are interested in um, is this whole issue of, I mean, as you say, it's so difficult to even imagine a society based on these principles of freedom now. Um, and that, I think, if, if I had to distill what we have to say about human nature or what perhaps is, is wrong about the picture of human nature that we get from our conventional um, ideas of world history is that we we keep telling us these stories that paint our species in this incredibly hopeless light. Our ancestors were almost like automatons, you know, slaves to the environment, or you know, once in a blue moon there was some great technological innovation. Oh, it's agriculture, oh, cities, oh, we invented digital technology. And then for thousands of years, we remain prisoners of our own creations. So these little moments of creating, well, no, you know, actually the story that we've uncovered, we've began beginning to uncover because the evidence is pouring in now at an extraordinary rate from, from our fields of, of study. But the picture that's emerging about human nature is that we're much more playful you know that book from the 1930s, the Dutch historian Johan Hausenger, Homo Ludens. What happened to Homo Ludens? We need to bring Homo Ludens back because this is what the evidence is pointing towards. You know, there is a pattern to human history. It's not all over the place, um, but it's a much more playful experimental pattern. We see institutions emerging time and again in this zone of ritual and play. Uh, monarchy, aristocracy, but also things like elections or sortition first appear in the context of funerary rituals or carnivals before they break out and become characteristic of entire societies. Same with material technologies. You know, the Chinese famously invented uh, uh, 
uh, gunpowder for fireworks before they start killing people with it. Um, or, you know, the Greeks invented the steam engine so that they could make um, temple doors open like magic and shut. It's just delightful. <laughs> um, and you go back and back into prehistory. I mean, the... Um, the first ceramics are made for sort of funny little figurines and things long before you've got functional containers. Uh, mining starts with pigments for cosmetics before you get industrial metallurgy. Uh, Mesoamerica, you've got you know, perfectly, we've talked about the lack of traction animals and pack animals, and uh, but they actually knew all about the, um, the workings of the wheel and spoke because they made toy versions for their kids. But they just decided to keep it there and um so uh, i think you know human nature and this is the important point given where our species finds itself at the present moment um at a, at a really crucial juncture where we are really being put to the test in terms of our capacity to change ourselves um in order to uh, to to remain even vaguely as we are on on the planet um, the message from history that's emerging um, is that um, maybe we don't have to quite despair to the extent that our traditional tellings of the human story suggest. Uh, in fact, we are a much more uh, playful, experimental species uh, than we tend to tell ourselves. I would love to know what you would hope readers could take away from the book about David Graeber, his his thought and who he was as a person? Actually, that's a surprisingly easy question for me to answer, uh, partly because we're at the stage now where enough people who knew David have read the book. And if you knew David, you know, his personality just shines through on every page. We, we didn't write in that way that some people co-author, you know, where you divvy it up and someone does one chapter. And so we didn't do it like that at all. So everything is co-written. So we had drafts going back and forwards of every chapter. And, and that's a process I can't really explain. It, it is a bit irrational and mystical of serendipity or whatever, why two people are able to, to allow their styles to merge in that way. Um, we were lucky, I guess. And, and it seems to work in the sense that it's, it's hard. I mean, you can tell... Uh, some people think they can tell which jokes are his, um, but actually a few of them are mine. Um, <laughs> but we, we, we did share a sense of humor, and thank God, because over 10 years, you know, you, you need one to do a project like this. Um, I think what I'd hope people uh, come away with, readers come away with, is a sense of David's lack of dogmatism. It's not a dogmatic book, and he wasn't a dog, you know, he never sort of tell you. But like you know, this whole idea of coercion. So like, this is the this is the theory that you must follow in order to know. I mean, it's more persuasive. Hopefully, the arguments persuasive. The data is persuasive, um, and his playfulness. Um, but above all, um, his generosity. You know, it's it's actually there was a point where he he wanted to call. We went through some ridiculous number of titles before we ended up where we where we did, and. He was very keen on the idea that calling it something that implied like an, an invitation, an invitation to the reader to, to engage with this 
new science of history, this new way of looking at human capacities. And I, I think the book's very much in, in that spirit. It's not laying down the law. We do have concepts, we have theories, and we have data to back them up. But it's very much the beginning of a, a project, an experiment that we certainly would have continued together. Actually, he'd already got cracking on what, what was going to be the first of three sequels. Uh, whereas I, uh, he had a lot of energy. I, I needed a rest after all this. Um, and that's something I've still got to get my, my head around. But um, yeah, I think the, uh, the image that I, I talked about yesterday, we had the book launch, uh, the UK launch of the British Library, and somebody asked a similar question. And the image that comes to mind was suggested to me by a student of David's about the dawn of everything is that it's, it's a bit like a toolkit, like a mental toolkit that you can dip into um, in order to stimulate debate over whatever it is, gender, property, the state, um, in a way that perhaps um, has been off limits or that people have assumed there's nothing much to talk about anymore. Uh, we try to show that actually there, there's an awful lot to talk about. Thank you so, so much for coming and sharing your decades worth of research and insight with us. It was an absolute pleasure and privilege to talk to you. Thank you for these questions, which were really penetrating and difficult, but I've enjoyed trying to get my head around. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.